of us is a stand-up comic. Can you tell who it is, ladies and gentlemen? <laughs> Peckerwood Brick. Um. <laughs> but the problem. <laughs> Oh my god, that's like, I could use that to teach the whole arc. Do Do we have any kind of archaeological evidence, any kind of of other corroborating evidence? This is a Geek History of Time. Where we connect nerdery to the real world. I'm Ed Blaylock. I'm a father of a 16-month-old son now. Uh, in my, well, now I guess I have to say mid-40s, uh, <laughs> since I've had a birthday. And uh, I have been a geek basically as long as I can remember. And uh, one of the hallmarks of my geekery was that every Friday night, and if not Friday night, then Saturday night in high school was game night with my buddies. And the biggest issue that always came up was, which game are we going to play? (laughs) By which I don't mean, are we going to do Settlers of Catan or, you know, uh, Dominion? But I mean, are we going to do D&D? Okay, well, if we're doing D&D, who wants to DM? Well, I don't want to DM. Well, I don't either. Okay, well, we want to play Cyberpunk. Who wants to run Cyberpunk? And, you know, usually we'd we'd wind up uh, playing Rifts just because that was the one thing that one of us was really, you know, happy about running. Uh, how about you? Uh, I'm Damien Harmony. I am, uh, I'd say, coasting toward my mid-40s. <laughs> <laughs> I am a father of a, a nine-year-old and a still six but almost seven-year-old. Uh, so I, apparently we're dating ourselves by how old our children are, uh, yeah. which means if we do these out of sequence, this whole thing's fucked. Totally bone. So, yeah. Uh, but uh, we just got the decorations for my daughter's uh, birthday party. Yeah. What's the theme? D and D theme. Heck yes! Yes, right. thank Fist you. Bump it. Fist yes, bump. Uh, she chose that, um, and so now I'm trying to figure out uh, how to get a square Jello mold to make a uh, gelatinous cube, and I'm also going that to probably is so awesome. <laughs> I'm probably going to be making an ice cream castle cake with miniatures nice. on it. Nice. So that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, I've been geeking for quite some time. I just realized uh, when I I saw a movie, what was it? I saw episode one of Star Wars, and the first thought I had with Qui-Gon Jinn was, that's the guy from Krull. (laughs) So that's... (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, that is. Yeah. He was the the blind... No. No, 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 no. no. He was the slave who was manumitted at the end. Oh my God. Spoiler alert. Oh my God, yeah. he was. He wasn't the tallest one in the shot. No, he wasn't. That was the weird Which part. Which is rare yeah. with him. Yeah. So that's, so, that's wow. that, there's my geek cred. Holy cow. So. All right. So uh, what are you reading right now? Uh, let's see. Right now, I just finished a graphic novel about professional wrestling. Okay. Um, which was a lot of fun. A lot more fun than... Uh, than I expected. I, it was kind of a... For me, it skims across the pond. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, but, mile uh, wide and an inch deep. Yeah. yeah. For everyone else, it's like, who the hell was Frank Gotch? You know, that guy. <laughs> yeah, so, well, but you're enough of a nerd about it that it was... Yeah, oh, okay. Yeah. All yeah, right, yeah, most definitely. So that's that's what I just finished reading. I'm getting back into the Saga series. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah. So. You've mentioned that one before. Mm-hmm. I, I got to pick it up. Yeah. I, I need to get back into reading actual books. But right now, I've just been kind of on a, a graphic novel kick. All right. I'll be going to Rome this summer. Uh, and that means in preparation for that, I'm going to read a book by Stephen Saylor called Murder on the uh, Appian uh, Way. 
Nice. Um, and I'm getting all my students to read it too because there's a okay. lot of great descriptions of Rome. Oh, Gordianus, very cool. Gordianus the Finder. It's a private investigator in Rome. It's pretty cool. What are you reading? That's perfect. I am, well, right now I'm between books. Mm-hmm. Uh, my students uh, and I just managed to make it through Fahrenheit 451 mm-hmm. in my single orphan English class. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was the first time in a very long while I had read it, mm-hmm. uh, and I realized uh, what a complete junkie I am for Bradbury's prose, mm. which is interesting because I had forgotten, mm-hmm. and I had to spend, it was one of the most frustrating teaching experiences of my career so far, was trying to get my students to understand, look, he's speaking allegorically here, he's crying. You need to understand there's weeping involved. That's that's what this is. Like, oh, right, okay. And when when he describes, spoiler alert, when he describes the nuclear bombs falling on the city at the end, mm-hmm. I had to explain to them this is a nuclear strike. Mm-hmm. And by the way, these are the details that he got wrong because it was the 50s when he wrote this. And right. You know, this was still a new thing, and sure. we didn't understand quite entirely about Fallout and this, that, and the other thing. Because, mm-hmm. of course, the book ends with Montag and the other living library gentlemen walking back toward the city, which has just been bombarded by H-bombs. Oh. Which, now we know, uh, no, 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 move move not only the other way, but move rapidly the other way as far as you can get. But the the idea of residual radiation fallout and all that either was something he chose to ignore for literary effect, which I don't think so, mm-hmm. or it was just it wasn't something that was part of the popular consciousness about nuclear weapons when he was writing it. Well, I mean, we were watching videos about how a blanket would save you, so it's it's possible as long as you didn't have open wounds on your skin you were fine yeah you were okay um i it's interesting that you mentioned no you really weren't you really really weren't it's interesting that you mentioned uh, living library because i remember that same phrase or something similar to it in soylent green okay yeah uh the person he goes to for research uh, oh yeah yeah well applied applied a different way yeah. Uh, because the the living library that that Montag encounters are mm-hmm. hobos who oh. used to be university professors and scholars okay. who have been turned into outcasts essentially. So he's gotten by some the things society. Right. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. that is that he, yeah that have been turned into outcasts by the society. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, and the idea is they have all because books are the physical objects are burned. They have found a way to lock an entire book up in your memory. Oh. And then bring it back out when you need it. And so they are a, a walking library. They okay. are the, the, the leader of the group refers to themselves as just a bunch of dust jackets for books. Nice. And so in the wake of the, the, the hope at the end of the book is that in the wake of the nuclear war, they're going to be able to fix what the society had gotten wrong for generations up till that point. Okay, cool. Well, what are you, uh, what are you telling us about tonight? I am going to be finishing up uh, my my semi rant about uh, Tolkien, and my thesis is talking about the connections between the Lord of the Rings and the World Wars. Okay. And uh, Tolkien's formative experiences in World War One, mm-hmm. uh, and then the experience of living through World War Two, and the relationship between those things, and what we see in the Lord of the Rings, and. As you may recall from mm-hmm. our last 
uh, session, um, the idea of the senselessness of war was, right. was a big thing uh, in his writing, which was a departure from the Germanic mythology and the Germanic culture that mm-hmm. he was t- cribbing everything from. Right. Uh, and we had a side discussion about how, well, you know, to us now today, some of the stuff kind of feels kind of fashy. Yeah. Because of the Anglo-Saxonness of it all. Yes, yes. And and he's kind of a victim of, you know, fascist jerkwads stealing from the same sources that he was trying to use mm-hmm. to build a fairy story and a mythology for England. Mm-hmm. Um and it should be noted that as we record this, there is right now a movie in right. theaters, the Tolkien film, uh, which is essentially building around the same thesis that I'm that I'm going from. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to note that the movie has been disavowed by the estate of John Ronald Rule Tolkien. I was going to ask you about that because, mm-hmm. um, and and now this this is where I need to I need to fairly bring this point up is Tolkien hated the implication that the Lord of the Rings was about the world wars. He vociferously argued against it. He also insisted that it was not an allegory. There was not an <laughs> allegory involved in it of a religious allegory. Cause everybody, cause of course, Catholics are a minority in Britain. Yeah. They they were at the time he was writing a minority that was looked at as being well you know they're kind of weird because mm-hmm. um, let's be honest guys we kind of are mm-hmm. not gonna lie um, but the you know there, there was there was this association with being a Catholic that well you know because he's a Catholic he's got to be writing about Catholicism okay no I'm not you know he he insisted no I'm not I'm not I'm genuinely not this mm-hmm. is not you know I'm not I'm not trying to write a Christ allegory that's not what I'm that's not what I'm doing this is a fairy tale I'm trying to create an English mythology and while I'm doing it I'm creating a bunch of fictitious languages and because I'm a linguist. And the thing is, I think it's, it's important to note that his authorial intent mm-hmm. was, was not, was explicitly not to write an allegory of the world wars. And it was explicitly not to write a Christian allegory okay, or an apologia or anything like that. But, and I gotta, I gotta engage in a little bit of, you know, humanities professor, arrogance here and say well you know he might not have meant that but but he did that. it's really hard sure not to see those influences because yeah you know the, the advice as somebody who has repeatedly tried and failed to to write a novel mm-hmm. or you know short stories or whatever you know the advice you always get is write about what you know right and the thing is whether you set out to write about what you know or not mm-hmm you always wind up writing about what you know. You kind of can't do otherwise. Right. I mean, that's why my, you know, uh, Deep Space Nine erotic fan fiction keeps coming back to certain themes about yeah. the Aeneid. Yeah. Well, yeah, because, yeah. because that's no matter what you know. how much I no matter, try. No matter how hard you try to get yeah. away from that, that you know, right. uh, kind I of, keep kind of shipping Dido and Odo, and it just, it, can't, it's weird. Can't, yeah. And that, that doesn't work. Like, no. I got to say... From my limited exposure to the series, that's that's you're painting yourself into a corner with that one. I that's clearly have. Really I'm, tough. I'm getting yeah. writer's block. Yeah. 
Actually, oddly enough... I don't understand how you haven't <laughs> scoured yourself with brain bleach, but fine. You, you do know that in the Aeneid that uh, they literally ship Aeneas oh, yeah. and Dido. Like, yeah. It is Roman fan fiction. Yeah. And he literally takes him by boat to Dido. He ships him to Dido. Okay. <laughs> Sir. Yes? I say good day. Okay. Good to know. So... No, let me get having back. gotten that out of the way. <laughs> sure. No, uh, go ahead. Uh, let me just circle back around to what you were saying. Yeah. Um, so there's no way that a Brit could write any story that expansive and not have it be influenced by the groundbreaking world that was World War One. Have it, I mean, you have entire neighborhoods getting lost. Yeah. I well, mean, like like yeah. we talked about yeah. when when Tolkien went away. Off mm-hmm. to the war, he he received a commission because he was from the middle class, right? And uh, he was from straitened circumstances, but he was from a gentlemanly background, mm-hmm. and uh, he had a university degree right. at that point, and so he he was an officer. Right, that's just the way that worked. And um, it's it's one of the interesting things about the way the books get written. Well, anyway, he, he before the war, he had a very close circle of friends from, mm-hmm. from his time in university. And he was the only one of them to come home. Speaking about whole neighborhoods so being you, you decimated. So you there's can't no not way, write about Yeah, there's that. no way. Yeah. And, and thinking about his experience as an officer, mm-hmm. and in the last episode I mentioned that it was his job as a lieutenant, he was the one blowing the whistle for his men to go up and over Right. Into no man's land. Right. You know, and this is the psalm we're talking about. Yeah. So 50,000 dead in one day. Yeah. I mean. On the British side yeah, alone. Murderous, yeah. murderous casualties. Yes. Just, you know, and so there's no way he could have gotten out of that without being affected. Mm-hmm. And there's no way that couldn't somehow shape the kind of story he was going to tell. At right. the very least. And, you know, there there may not have been consciously and there wasn't really consciously mm-hmm. a one for one parallel that you know uh you there know, didn't have to machine be machine guns machine guns of the dragon or right, anything right, like right. that you know but there yeah there didn't have to be because it's, right. it's just going to be the kind of story he's going to tell and the themes that are going to be involved there's no way to avoid it it's it's and, like cooking with salt water like you you will have food that is salty yeah. No matter what, no matter how much sugar you pour into it, no matter what, like if you're using salt water, then you're going to have salty food. It just that's how it's going yeah. to be, and and yeah. it's the same thing. It's, if yeah. if you lived through the war, then some of your stories will be about that. I don't know if you've changed how you play D and D, but since I've been a parent, mm-hmm. I've changed how I play D and D. First off, my characters are progressively getting older and fatter. Uh, <laughs> And, uh, but also, none of them are orphans anymore. They all have families. Oh. Which I'm telling okay. you, you know, I straight up tell the yeah. DM, feel free to fuck with the family thing. Yeah. But my character has a family because yeah. I'm going against trope. Yeah. And, and maybe I'm going against trope because I really like being a dad. I don't know. But, like, again, it's infecting well, how the, I... The experience, the experience of parenthood right. changes your outlook in fundamental ways that you can't realize right. until you're there. Yeah. Like, you know, the value of sleep <laughs> <laughs> is, is 
I cannot tell you <laughs> how much right now I would be willing to pay cashy money. <laughs> just cold, hard cash. Mm-hmm. Just to be able to sleep a full, uninterrupted eight hours. The worst part is just lying you'd buy down, that time yeah. and you'd still wake up through it. Not right now. Not no. not tonight. Maybe not. Tonight I would Maybe not. I know what you're saying yeah. and you're not wrong. Yeah. Which which makes me want to weep right now <laughs> thinking about it. You're welcome. You're not wrong. Yeah. But but like right now, yeah. I, I'm operating t- tonight as we record, I'm operating on four and a half hours sleep from last night. So no, no, tonight. No, no. <laughs> I gone. But so we're getting off the subject. Sure. To quote Cobra Bubbles. Um so from Tolkien is not writing an allegory, is, even though he he's is. writing an allegory. He's he, not well, writing he's with not, that mind, even though he's writing with that mind. Yeah, e- yeah, even though even though he's writing with that riddling his subconscious. Right. He's not intentionally writing it, and he got heated mm-hmm. with literary critics and and fellow writers mm-hmm. who who brought up those parallels. He was like, okay, no, look, and he had arguments mm-hmm. for all of it he would say no look this this that that is not what that's supposed to be this is taken from this source in the mythology and all that and and you know everybody for the rest of his life and i almost feel bad for him about this is kind of went yeah huh okay and they <laughs> they nodded you know politely and let him go on with it like yeah okay pat him on the head right you know um but he he started writing the lord of the rings in 1937 okay and Part of his argument was that the start. Of, he he especially hated the implication that it was about World War Two. When people okay. tried to talk about his experiences in the Great War, he wasn't quite as heated about it. But when they okay. tried to say it was World War Two, he said, "No, I started writing it in '37." Yeah, and the start of the First World War was just as terrifying mm-hmm. as the start of the Second. The experience of the start okay. of, the, of, of the beginning of the war mm-hmm. was just as shocking and just as bad to okay. him as the start of the second one. And um, because the book really got huge in the 50s mm-hmm. into the 60s, everybody wanted to draw the parallel between the One Ring and nuclear weapons. Oh, okay. And that one was one of his one of his berserk buttons, <laughs> uh, because he, he he dismissed it completely, mm-hmm. uh, because he said if if the ring had been an allegory for a nuclear weapon, mm-hmm. then uh, the Allied peoples would have used it, mm. and the ending would have been much darker and uglier, and infinitely worse for it. Oh wow. Because he was, as I mentioned in the, in the last one, right. his experiences in right. the First World War made him a truly dedicated pacifist. Mm-hmm. And, and the idea of nuclear weapons was deeply shocking and abhorrent to him yeah. on, on every level. Yeah. Um, but it does have to be said that when the ring is dropped into Mount Doom, it essentially flattens all of Mordor. Yeah, the the shock wave, you know, right, uh, winds right, right. up winds up causing a massive volcanic eruption that leads to the destru- the the destruction of the mountain. The mountain collapses. Right. Uh, you know, the movies then add to that with you know the the Tower of Dol Guldur exploding from the base outward. Sure. You know, uh, but but in the books, mm-hmm. it's very clear that okay, no, you drop the ring into the mountain, the mountain blows up. 
Yeah. So I get you know, why people would say that, but I also completely side with him on this because, of course, you're going to have a giant explosion of all that is evil when you've destroyed the evil the, token. The yeah. uh, token. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. The evil MacGuffin. Yeah. Um. And uh, like that would that just makes sense? Like, yeah. Narratively. I, I, yeah. Yeah. From, I understand. From a myth making. Yeah. Uh, uh, Campbellian kind of standpoint. Yeah. That's the way that that has to work. And it is very fairy tale because if it was an allegory at that time, or if it was even a a, a fictional fantasy world at that time, mm-hmm. there would be a sense of like, oh no, evil's still here. You know, it would have been kind oh, of yeah. like that piece that got under the carpet. Um, in no, no, mom, dad, it's a piece of evil. Right. Don't touch it. Right. I just love that we both can reference time, time bandits, bandits without like me saying seamlessly it. without yeah. even yeah. Uh, but like and it was in the toaster oven, if I remember correctly. Oh, that's right, it was. Yeah, and yeah. Sean Connery was the fire captain. Yes. In the last second, you find yes. out that Sean Connery was the fire captain, and that was supposed to be the happy ending. Yeah, it was a weird one. It was um, well, yeah, well, but Terry like Gilliam, how like <laughs> yeah, dude, also true. But so like you know, you don't have to destroy the tower. If you're not writing a fairy tale. But if you're writing a fairy tale, you have to undo all that is evil. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, from a Freudian mm-hmm. kind of Jungian... Yeah. You've, you've defeated... I'm not sure if it's Freud or Jung or both of them. I think it's Jung because it's archetypical. Okay, yeah, okay. But um, I, I, it's a it's a level of... It's almost like in video games when you, after you kill a guy or in D&D. After you kill a guy, his corpse isn't just sitting there. It disappears. It ceases to be part of the terrain. You Narratively. Un, yes, You've undone Un- unless unless you evil. have you know a DM who really wants to make a point of being gritty about. So you march back into the dungeon over the corpses of all the orcs that you've slain. Right, you know, the last right. couple of times. You it's know, slick. It's it's kind of slick yeah. and really starting to smell bad. Yep. Everybody make a con check. You know? <laughs> um. So, but you know, there's there's other there are other parallels to his lived experience. Mm-hmm that were informed at the very least by the first world war that I think are also important to point out. Um, let's look at who our heroes are. Frodo, Mary. Uh, why are Pippin. you holding up a finger when you say Frodo? That seems insensitive. Nice. Well Thank played. You. Thank you. Well played. It wasn't my ring finger. That's true. It was my but index it, finger. But is it, is it his ring finger in the, in the book? Um, it's never explicitly stated which finger it is. Okay. Cause it, it seemed to me in the movies they were doing index and that yeah. reminds me of Roman signet rings. That's a good point. Yeah. See, the first thing I always think of, even having seen all of the Peter Jackson movies, the mm-hmm. first thing I think of, mm-hmm. as we've mentioned in a previous oh, it's the recording. Yeah. No, 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 no. Oh, no. Backsheet, no, no. no. Yeah, no, yeah, no. yeah. Thumbs down to okay. Backsheet. No, it's the it's the Rankin Bass. I didn't realize I was being introduced to anime when I watched it, but I was yes. version. Uh, and in that one, mm-hmm. in that in that version of the Return of the King, it is. His, his ring, ring finger, finger yeah. I want to say on his right hand, mm-hmm. uh, that Gollum winds up biting off. Okay. Spoiler alert, sorry. The book's been out since the 50s. Come on, catch up. Mm-hmm. Um, and if not, you've seen Harry Potter. It's the yeah, same story. It's, it's, wait. Okay, well, there's parallels. <laughs> I'll give you... I'll get, wait. <laughs> okay, crap. That's going to be going to need to be another episode. I don't have time to go into it right now. It's but, the same as Star Wars, if you haven't... Yeah, well... Yes, Joseph Campbell, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Read Joseph Campbell. Because everyone and else is, did. Because everybody else did. Yeah. So, uh, but Frodo, mm-hmm. Mary, and Pippin are bourgeois gentry. Okay. They are they are landowners. All three of them are coming from uh, upper middle class, 
more than yeomen, but mm-hmm. not like they're, they're, the hobbits don't have nobles, right. but they're they clearly do a leisure class. Yeah, they are. Yeah. They are. They are guys who don't dig in the mud for a living. Right. Uh, oh. They all three of them come from well-to-do families. That's right. The the Bagginses are a, an established, very respectable, right, very bourgeois family. Uh, the Brandy Bucks mm-hmm. similarly are actually the most um, lordly. I was gonna say, don't of they? The three of them, don't they, they own they, the hall? They 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 own they own Brandy Buck Hall, which, yeah. by the way, if I can convince my wife to, to go with it when we when we buy a house, I'm going to name it. I want to name it Brandy Buck Hall just because that's awesome. So just looking around, I realized I never named this place. Yeah, huh. something to think about. Mm. Uh, I got to find some phrase in Mando. Um, Something in Latin or not? Yeah, well, yeah. okay, yeah, good point. So, and then and then the Took family mm-hmm. are a legendary, you know, family. The Bull Roar. Like, they were like the tallest. They, of them they or were. Something. They, they yeah. were. Yeah, they were. They were known as being the, the biggest. And and uh, Bull Roar Took was known for having defeated, if I'm remembering the lore correctly. Uh, Stephen Colbert could get this, um, but I believe Bull Roar Took. Was the one who defeated the goblin chieftain Golfin Bull and knocked his head into a rabbit hole. Golfin Bull. Nice. Yeah. I like that a lot. Yeah, I, I knew you would. The moment, <laughs> the moment I remembered that story, I'm like, yeah, Damien will get a kick out of this one. So even Tolkien wasn't immune to your sickness. Um, <laughs> you know, I have a comedy friend who pointed this out on stage once. People get angry at puns make no sense because you're basically angry that you're intelligent. True. Yeah. Well, you know, it. It. I. I remember reading somewhere, and I don't know if somebody was actually just saying this as a joke, but it mm-hmm. makes sense to me that that the center of your brain responsible for getting a pun, mm-hmm. like the center of your brain that's that's responsible for doing math, mm-hmm. is located close to the pain center of your brain. <laughs> so there's so there's a little bit of neuronal shadow going on there. <laughs> so that's the reason when you hear one, you're like, oh, oh. god. So. Could be. I don't know. Yeah. I, 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 I find it believable. But mm-hmm. so so the three of these guys, Frodo, Mary, and Sam uh, mm-hmm. Pippin, Pippin. Yeah. Frodo, Mary, and Pippin are upper class twits. Okay. Okay. They're yeah. they're upper middle class twits. They're they're you know, the guys that would go to boarding schools like the one that Tolkien attended, they right. they they represent his class. Mm-hmm. And Frodo is the primary ring bearer. Right. Right. Uh, Mary and Pippin wind up over the course of the story uh, attaching themselves to different noble figures from the world of men. Right. You know, um, and and when they come back to the Shire, they are referred to by the locals later on in their lives as lordly, mm-hmm. and nobody ever meant anything bad by it. They meant it as a, as a term of you know, look what a couple of classy, you know, right. respectable, you know, stand up guys these two young hobbits are. Mm-hmm. And um, by comparison, mm-hmm. Samwise Gamgee... He's a worker. Is, ...is a gardener. Yeah. And he's the working class hero. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that Tolkien wrote back to his friends and his wife, Edith, about was how much admiration and respect mm-hmm. he developed... For the men under his command, who were from this, because it was Britain, stratified society. It was very, yeah, it was much more stratified society than we're used to. I mean, it was, the stratification was much more formal. Yeah, It'd be a better way of putting it. We have a stratified society, but but the the stratification is not 
formalized in the same yeah, way. The Brits didn't lie to themselves about it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a bleak way of putting it, but yes. <laughs> um, and so, and it's interesting to note that of the ring bearers, mm-hmm. there's Bilbo, mm-hmm. who also, again, comes from that same bourgeois. Yeah, he's his uncle. Kind of class, yeah. yeah. Um, and then Frodo. Mm-hmm. And then Sam, very briefly, mm-hmm. is, is a ring bearer. Yes. And Sam is the one of them who is not in any way corrupted by the ring. And I always thought that was just a matter of, like, the length of time he had it. That's one possible argument, but then if you kind of, you know, think yeah. about it for a moment, there's also an element of it that, you know, uh, Sam doesn't want the whole time they're on this journey, mm-hmm. the whole time from the time they leave the Shire until they get to Mordor, until they get home, mm-hmm. uh, Boromir of course, winds up getting... He never even puts the thing on. Right. And just having it there is enough for him to be to be tempted by. To kind of gall him out. Yeah, yeah. And... Yeah. and, and but and he's a man and men are men are, men are men are Men are fallible. Men are right. tempted by power. Men are you yeah. know, ambitious and all that kind of stuff. And so, okay, so there's Boromir. Okay. Also keep in mind, Boromir is from an even higher social class. Oh, wow. He is the son of the steward of Gondor. He is right. a ruler of men. Right. So that connection of power seeking power is a thing. Right. And all Sam Gamgee ever wants to do, mm-hmm. like over the course of the whole book, he's in it because he's loyal to Mr. Frodo mm-hmm. in, in a very paternalistic kind of yeah. description of... That kind of relationship. It's it's uh, in 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 Rome they had a um, this idea of if you were a freedman or if you were even a client of a a dominus or a, a patronus, um, then you were loyal to that household. And there was a word for that, and it was familia. Yeah, you were part of his not family, his familia. They didn't have a word for family that was equivalent. They had gens and they had a few yeah, other yeah, words, yeah, yeah. Yeah. but that was lineage this was you are a member of his household and okay. it reminds me of like the mafias he's with us yeah or he's well, with very, me very very much yeah. yeah so uh that kind of loyalty would be the loyalty that you would see in a freed slave mm-hmm. or that you would see in a client who knew where his bread was buttered um and it wasn't just for you know well this is practical these people protect me and i just you know go out and do things for them it was a loyalty to that house yeah. Um, so I've I've seen an- uh, antecedents of this. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Things. And 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 the it's, it's and also the, it also comes from you mm-hmm. know feudal, the the feudal ideal as viewed by the people on the top of the ladder. Right. You know that well. You know the people. You know we're we're if we rule properly, then noblesse people oblige. will love us. And you know. Yeah. And yeah, the the whatever the reverse of noblesse oblige would be that mm-hmm. you know, and he's he's the ideal part of his character mm-hmm. is the idealized. Loyal, uh, loyal servant, loyal. Right, you know. the manservant. Yeah, and so anyway, but but all he really wants through mm-hmm. the entire story is he wants to go home mm-hmm. to green growing things, which is a theme that he brings up repeatedly. He wants to go back to the garden. He wants yeah. to go back to look after his dad, the gaffer, and he wants to go back to the girl mm-hmm. he left behind, who he never had the guts to say anything to before he left home. Yeah, I see how this is nothing like World War One. Nothing at all. No. No, not at all. And so, but because that's all he wants. Right. 
he doesn't want to he doesn't have any goals to restore the kingdom of men he doesn't have any goals well what's frodo's goal then well frodo frodo is motivated by and and this is where we segue Mm -hmm. into talking about how uh tolkien insisted it wasn't a catholic allegory (laughs) and he didn't mean for it to be one but um there is an interesting division of the role of christ figure in the Lord of the Rings. Okay. Sam mm-hmm. is, in in the end, in very many ways, Samwise Gamgee winds up being the ultimate Christian in that he does not seek power, he does not seek glory, he does what he does out of loyalty, love for the people who are close to him, mm-hmm. a love of his home and his people, uh-huh. and, and he is... Entirely selfless. Okay. Frodo is motivated by a similar kind of sense of duty. Okay. And Frodo is the one who winds up being scourged. Frodo winds up getting tortured by the orcs. Right. In in Mordor. Um, and the only point at which the, the point at which it becomes notable that Frodo departs from a Christ figure kind of narrative mm-hmm. is that he fails at the end that he has his moment above He's... the crack of doom mm-hmm. he says no i choose not to do it where he's he's been he's been overwhelmed right. by the power of the ring by the power of sauron he's in the heart of the evil place. Yeah, he succumbs like many of us would. Yeah, he yeah. he he, and and in that moment, of mm-hmm. course, he deviates from the Christ story because up until that point, mm-hmm. he he takes on a burden right that that is not his. Um, so he's uh, Simon. If, if you would if you would take this burden away from me, right? You know, by your will be done. He says, you know, I will take the ring into mortar, though I do not know the way. Mm-hmm. Okay, because yeah. you know. So he picks that up. When uh, there, there are all the trials and everything that happen along the way, um, and he he remains true to his quest up until the very end, mm-hmm. despite the consistent temptation either to just run away, ditch it all and go home, and the constant temptation to put the ring on, use the ring, do something with the ring, sure. hand the ring off to somebody else. Um, and he, he remains true to that. And then again, a very important allegorical point in the orc fortress. Uh, when they get into Mordor, they get captured, right? And he is flogged. He is tortured and beaten. And we don't really get the details because uh, uh, Tolkien was a Victorian and didn't go into all the horrible, you know, lash for lash for lash. But we know right. he's hideously tortured, beaten almost to the point of death mm-hmm. by the orcs when Sam shows up and rescues him and they continue on their way to get sure. to Mount Doom. And that's the point at which Sam becomes the ring bearer mm-hmm. because Frodo literally can't walk. Right. And so he, he takes the weight of the ring himself. If Frodo becomes the burden. Yes, in a way. Uh, and so, so between the two of them, there's Uh this interesting kind of nature of neither one of them is entirely a Christ figure and both of them are idealized Christian figures. Okay. And there are a lot of points that you can look at and say, 
on some sub- subconscious level, the gospel was poking at the back of, of Tolkien's brain mm-hmm. as he was writing about it. Um, so, you know, and at the end of it, um, they, Sam winds up, you know, uh, being the one to carry the ring the very last stretch, hands it off to Frodo. Mm-hmm. And in the end, it is Gollum who winds up biting Frodo's finger off and right. then falling into the crack of doom. Right. And there is a very pointed fairy tale kind of lesson about the consuming power of evil mm-hmm. there. Yeah, it consumes itself. It consumes itself. Yeah. Uh, which uh, is also uh, the law of Takisis from Dragonlance, for those of us who are later kinds of nerds. Sure. Uh, good redeems its own as the law of Paladine. Uh, the law of Takisis is that evil consumes its own. Some okay. variation on that. And so, the, I mean, this is a thematic thing within any kind of judeo christian if you're looking yeah. at the world through any kind of judeo-christian lens that's going to be a thing that comes up i'm also looking at it through that world war one that he keeps denying lens and i'm seeing that human nature will not save us the goodness of humanity will not save us yes him and the him and the romantics after yeah. the war right yeah or yeah i want to say the rom- no I don't remember which movement I'm thinking of, but dot all of them after mm-hmm. the war yeah. basically come back to, look, science and rationality got us into all this. Mm-hmm. Technology got us into all this. Right. Know, world War One was the first mechanized war. We right. talked about that in the last episode. And again, the theme of the conflicting forces right. is that Sauron, mm-hmm. remember when he started out as... Uh, and I don't have his name in front of me right now, but Sauron started out as an angel in the service to the god mm-hmm. of crafting. Right. And his... his he Start with f- an M or an H. Uh, Mayron. Yeah. Something like Mayron. And and so he he fell because he got seduced by the desire to dominate and, and impose order on reality. Well, what everybody wanted to do, all of the imperial powers wanted to enforce order on the world. They right. Wanted, they wanted to impose their order. And they got into this conflict because their, their competing different orders. ideas, their competing orders wound up running into each other full steam. And all of the clever technological tricks and all of the machines and all of the stuff that they were supposed to use to make the war shorter mm-hmm. wound up actually turning it into the bloodiest, ugliest most destructive conflict the world had seen up to that point. Mm-hmm. And then it ends in 14 or it ends in 18, I should say. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, 20 years later, the whole thing happens all over again. Well, let's back up just a hair though. So it, it ends in 18. Yeah. Everybody's starving. <laughs> so again, fairy tale because yeah. he destroys the evil mm. in the book, but in 18 the world keeps chugging along and everyone's starving and then the the flu looks around and goes oh it's well, cute that you tried that 17 yeah but so, it so wipes out was the flu was part of the reason the war ended i mean if we really want to be honest really well because it 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 wound up it sucked resources away from everybody okay. who was who was otherwise going to be going to be continuing fighting okay um, because the the epidemic of, of it started in seventeen, okay, and it was notable in mm-hmm. that most of the time when there's a flu outbreak, the people that are most at risk are the very young, right, and the very old, right. 
the swine flu epidemic of 17 Mm -hmm. was killing people in their prime. Mm Mm-hmm. By like, the hundred like of by million. The, by the hundreds of, of mm-hmm. you know, many Hundreds zeros, of thousands. Hundreds yeah. of thousands. It killed about a hundred million. And it, yeah, it basically it was, was like, it oh, was, cute war you had there. He killed ten million. Yeah, it was, Watch yeah, this. It was, yeah, it was, practically, it was practically another plague outbreak. Mm-hmm. It was massively destructive. And so, interestingly, mm-hmm. um, at the end of The Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. um, Aragorn, son of Arathorn, um, wait, wait, I, I just really want to get back to that flu thing. Yeah. That flu is Gollum. The goodness of man, the industriousness okay. of man, yeah. will not save us. Okay. It'll take us right up to the precipice and then fail. Okay. The thing that'll save us is the thing that's going to destroy itself. And the you flu could, ultimately... You could, you could write a historical literary critique around that. That I would totally read. <laughs> I'm sure the the estate of J.R.R. Tolkien uh-huh. would like send people with flamethrowers to your house. That's all right. But but yeah, no, I, it's I think an I interesting. Just name this place Shea Asbestos. There so. you go. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. yeah. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it's again, it's the self consuming nature of destruction. Yeah. That ended it. Yeah. And it's the self consuming nature of. Like you said, the the flu had an impact on the war ending. Yeah, and so did revolutions. Well, and yeah. so did you know, like yeah. social, like it was all breaking down, and so people were just like, well, because historically speaking, um, you know, one, one of the things it was well, all of the industrialized nations of the world had been fleeing their young men and all of their industrial might at right. one another for four years. Yeah. Now you know you, you look at you look at history and you look at you know we talk about the Thirty Years' War we talk about the Hundred Years' War we talk about the, none of those were continuous conflicts. Yeah, like the Hundred Years' War. I just got done telling my kids about the Hundred mm-hmm. Years' War a couple of weeks ago in my in my history class, and the thing is the Hundred Years' War is called that because there wasn't really a definitive "we are now no longer at war" yeah. treaty between the beginning of it and the end of it. Right, but there were. 30-year-long stretches where they weren't really at war. There, there was raiding. You know, hostility. The English, there was hostility. The, yeah. English, the English would, you know, get a bunch of nobles together and go, right, we're going to raid France. And right. they'd go and they'd, you know, burn some crops, steal some cattle, you know, destroy yeah. some stuff, burn a castle or two, and then head back to Calais and back to England. Right. You know, and the French would, you know, look Kill their us. own Jews. Yeah. Well, everybody did that. Right. During the plague. That was that happened like everywhere, yeah. unfortunately. But yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, but also but the yeah. French the French the French would kill their own peasants. Yes. You know, regularly. Uh, and they'd look across the channel at England and, you know, your mother was a hamster and your father right. smells of elderberries, and that was really all they could do. Right. Because they were fighting their own civil war. But anyway, I'm getting off the topic. So the, the Hundred Years, we call it the Hundred Years War, and it sounds like, oh man, my God, that must have been so epic. Mm-hmm. And no, no, it really wasn't. It yeah. was just these two, these two groups of people, these two nations really hated each other and spent a lot of time beating the daylights out of each other over the course of a century and fought back and forth yeah. over who was going to rule both countries. So, you know, it's and, like- then, and then you have the Thirty Years War, right. which was more destructive, yeah. more intense, more consistently, intensely destructive for technological reasons. Mm-hmm. But still, there were at, Large the, gaps. At, at the very least, every year when when 
the the rain started to fall in the autumn, everybody would pack up and go home because mm-hmm. the roads turned to mud and there was no way to travel. And they'd wait until spring came along and the roads dried out, and then they'd go off to kill one yeah. another again. And and so yes, it lasted thirty years, but there was only about five months out of each year where there was really active campaigning going on mm-hmm. most of the time, with a couple of notable exceptions. But with with World War One, they were constantly fighting. Yes. For four years with every resource they had. Aimed at it, yeah. Aimed aimed at the conflict mm-hmm. and, and sitting across from one another in the trenches. A hundred yards away. A hundred yards, less than that, yeah. in, in a lot of places, just staring at each other, you know, lobbing shells, lobbing gas, lobbing right. all, you know, and and it didn't let up. Yeah. And so it was immensely destructive to all of their economies. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, and I'm trying to remember, I've been listening to, to other episodes that we've already recorded that we haven't put up on the, on the website yet. Hmm. And I don't remember where it was that this thought occurred to me, but but we were talking. Oh, we were talking about the Confederacy, mm-hmm. and you know the Confederacy was doomed. Like historically, we can look at it and say they were doomed from the start mm-hmm. because they just didn't have the material base that the North did. Like right. if you look at it as okay, look, we know with, with the benefit of hindsight, we know that it was really going to be the first modern war, as we would call it today. And they they didn't have the material to maintain a war effort as long as the North did. Right. Well, the uh, imagine if the, everybody did. <laughs> yeah, oh, Lord. But the thing is, it's a truism that the Germans have the same issue. Mm-hmm. The Germans are really, really, really scary mm-hmm. historically in the short term. Yeah. Oh yeah, but in the stretch, they always flag, and that's and that's what wound up happening during the war. That's mm-hmm. that's, you know, what led to the revolutions that happened. Yeah. you know, at at in eighteen, eighteen or nineteen. I'm trying to remember when it when well, the it Russian Revolution Germany. started. Well, the Russian the Russian Revolution yeah, is it was in 17. seventeen. Yeah, I'm talking about in Germany the the elimination. Well, it was after the their their upheaval. That happens after the that, war. That's after the war. Yeah. But they were they were decimated. I mean, yeah. ec- economically they were completely shattered. They they didn't have the supplies. They didn't have the keep, empire. Yeah, they they just didn't have the resources to, yeah. to keep it going. And so, uh, so yeah, it, it was it was only four years, but they were completely shattered and exhausted. Mm-hmm. And you know, then then they got hit with the Treaty of Versailles. Right at the end of it. Um, and what's interesting mm-hmm. is in the Lord of the Rings, Aragorn, mm-hmm. who becomes king of the United, the now United Kingdom of Arnor and Gondor, of uh, the Kingdom of Men in the North and the South. The League of Nations. Sort of. Yeah. Uh, he's also the, the son of Arathorn, right? Yeah. 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 Um, and, and he winds up pardoning mm-hmm. the human servants of Sauron. Really? Yes. Oh. He he grant he says, look, you've been under the sway of this mm. evil force. Um, Does that include Wormtongue? What is his name? Grima. Yeah, Wormtongue. Well, we're gonna get into Grima okay. Wormtongue because okay. you you've seen the movies. Yeah, but I've also I remember him and Sauron going Shireward. Saruman. Saruman going Shireward. Yes. Yeah. Okay. The, the, the scouring of the Shire, which I'm yeah. gonna get into in a moment. Um, but he, he he pardons the human, saying you were under yeah, the sway. Which 
is um, I, I think could be viewed as a part of its fairy tale. Mm-hmm. Is, you know, the, 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 the king pardons everybody, everybody lives happily ever after. But there's also the fact that after World War One, no, no, this war was all your fault. Hmm. You're going to pay us back every penny yeah. that we had to spend defeating you. Right. And we're going to keep you under our heel mm-hmm. forever if we could get away with it. But at the very least, long enough uh, to make sure that, that you never have the strength to do anything like this ever again. Right. Yeah, no, if you're going to do that, do it like a mob boss because the way the way they tried to do it failed. Yeah. Well, this is and, a problem when you have democratic revenge. Yes. It's Yes, that good point. Your decency interferes with your ruthlessness. Yeah. And um at the very end of the War of the Ring. Mhm. One of the things that separates Lord of the Rings from other stories like it mm-hmm. is that very explicitly at the end of the story the fairy tale kingdom loses its magic mm. the destruction of the ring mm-hmm. is an epochal event that leads to magic fading away the elves all pack up on the ships right and head back west to rejoin the Valar in the undying lands mm-hmm. The ring bearers are like the only non-elves given the the honor of getting to do that. Mm-hmm. Catholic allegory, they go straight to heaven. <clears throat> Which, you know, Tolkien would argue, no, 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 that's not what I meant, but it it's inescapable. And so as much as like like we said, I mean, we we've we've at this point I feel like we're kind of beating a dead horse with it, but as much as he didn't intend these these he did consciously write the story to draw these parallels out. Right. He didn't, you know, he, he didn't have one to one uh uh similes or one to one right. metaphors in his head when he was writing them. It's still they're inextricable. It's mm-hmm. it's it's really, really hard to get away with well, no, it's just a fairy tale and there's nothing there's nothing there. Right. You know, as as much as he didn't want to own up to it, or he didn't he didn't want he he I think he didn't want his work reduced to that. Okay. He he wanted the story to be the story, mm-hmm. but scholars being what they are, literary critics being what they are, people being what they are. It's mm-hmm. like, well, okay, this echoes this other thing. This, you know. Well, and any fiction is a snapshot in time of the time in which it was written. Mm-hmm. Like, any anything about the past is about now, and anything about the future is about now. Mm-hmm. Like, those are facts. Yeah. So. Yeah. And one of the things that we want to get back momentarily to sure. talking about Sam, one of the things that was... Uh, the hardest thing for Tolkien about his military service mm-hmm. was he developed this very close relationship with the men he was commanding and mm-hmm. he really loved and respected the men he was commanding. And he had to be the one to blow the whistle to send him up into no man's land. Right. And part of his characterization of Sam mm-hmm. I think is born out of that. 
the idealization mm-hmm. of this of this character. Part of it is is just class stereotypes. Sure, I mean, we have to cop to that being a thing, but I think really really part of it is a sign of how much he cherished mm-hmm. those those men and the people like them. And in some ways, he's apologizing to them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then his his love all his life of nature, his love of um, the the natural world and the pastoral kind of environment that is the Shire, right, um, is clearly a recurring theme. Saruman winds up coming a cropper, not from an invading army of of the men of the West or mm-hmm. of uh, the riders of Rohan, but the Ents. The trees mm-hmm. literally get revenge by destroying right. his, all of his works, ripping everything up, diverting a river into flood, all of his underground pits and all the places where he's been breeding his orcs. So nature literally gets its revenge on him. Well, or, or and, nature grows back. I mean, this is also Eric Maria, uh, Maria remark. Yeah. I mean, he's big on how, I mean, nature's constantly reclaiming no man's land. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, no, and, and stuff like that. So True. Yeah. True. And Eric uh, wrote his book in 28, I want to say. No, the movie came out in 20... The movie came out in 32. Yeah. But yeah, I think he might have written his book right around 28 or so. Yeah. A little, little yeah. before, a little after. Yeah. Um, so that would have been something that Tolkien likely would have read. Probably. Yeah. It, it it's it's certainly certainly likely that he did, mm-hmm. or it was at least in the circles. Um, that it was, he was it was yeah, yeah he he it was it was in it was in the air yeah. at the very least. But um, Tolkien carried a really powerful distrust, mm-hmm. like many survivors of the Great War did. Right, you know, I mean this this is when we see a rebirth of mysticism, mm-hmm. and and the occult yes becomes a th- a widespread thing amongst. Yes. The, the guys that come back from the war. Mm-hmm. Um, That's true also in World War II. One of the guys who... The guy who started the Wiccan religion. Hate to break it to y'all, it started in the 60s. Um, but the guy who started it as modern such... Modern incarnation yes, of it. Yes, yes. Uh, the one that everybody buys crystals for now. Yeah. Uh, the, the, uh, that guy was a frogman. And really? Did, yeah, and did underwater demo. Um and like ambushing things against the Germans in World War Two. Holy cow! Yeah. All right. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. You know, and 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 um, Crowley. Yep. Alistair Crowley. Yep. Uh, you know, interwar period is is a big deal. Right. Because you know the church didn't save us. Traditional, you know, Judeo-Christian religion kind mm-hmm. of kind of was responsible for getting us into this mess. Certainly, keeping us there. Yeah, and yeah. and of course, Tolkien, yes. being a devout Catholic, would not buy into that. But his distrust of modernity mm-hmm. and his distrust of um, the automatic belief that, well, you know, technology is ipso facto a good thing, right? Would have would have been a big part of what he carried out of his time in the trenches. You see, here's the problem, though. 
this is where you can loop him back into being kind of proto-fasci because one of the myths that Hitler was really big on selling mm-hmm. was the German Volk. Good farming people. The reason for Lebensraum is because they needed more farmland. There is this, at the same time as he's gearing up the machines oh, for yeah, war yeah, yeah, and yeah. modernizing. I mean, he used oh, IBM yeah. Oh, yeah, to yeah, kill yeah. people. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, if you look at a lot of his early propaganda posters, he's a knight. There are farming folk. Oh, well. All kinds of that Yeah, well, the thing is, here's, here's the, what I'm going to argue here. He, I'm saying that he didn't start it, but that whole thing was easily co-opted oh by oh yeah was yeah. yes certainly yeah well and and you know let's let's look at within within our own history um agrarianism mm-hmm. of any kind which is interesting because that's the th- part of the theme of the other episode i've got for recording tonight hmm. uh but agrarianism is something that gets picked up by everybody yeah at some point throughout history some idealization of the land, some idealization of, you know, back to nature, back to our roots as yep. people, back to, you know, the simple virtuous farmer, you know, all that kind of stuff. There was that commercial for Chevy about three years ago. Yeah. Super Bowl 2016. Yeah. Yes. 2016. You know, yeah. before the election. Yeah. There's there's the farmer. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And... You know, I, I think we could we could spend a lot of time talking about that, but I, I I I do see what you're saying. Yeah, I think that was a wide beyond the fascists picking that up and running with it. Mm-hmm. It was a widespread thing everywhere. Sure, I mean everybody it it all it everybody who came back from the front mm-hmm. carried with them some level of cynicism about. The pre-war idealization oh, of, yeah. you know, technology is going to save us all, right. know, rationality and all this stuff, you know, um, and and the knee-jerk assumption again that mm-hmm. technology was, you know, prima facie, not ipso facto, prima facie, a a good thing, like technological advancement is just automatically it's progress, it's progress, yep. and you know these guys had seen progress literally murder their friends, yeah, in waves, yeah. And so... With the goal of doing that, by the way. Yeah. Here's progress for war. Poison gas. Yeah. That way, war will end. Yeah. No. No, no. No, it really won't. just made it worse. You know? Yeah. And so... um, So that that level of distrust Uh is part of the underpinning... Of what becomes the, the mythology that he's creating with Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. and when Frodo and Sam and Mary and Pippin get back to the Shire, mm-hmm. and I'm gonna and I'm gonna try to wrap this up by using the ending of the of the series, the, the scouring cool. of the Shire. Cool. When they get back to the Shire, they have defeated. The evil, right? They have been given accolades and and titles, and they are heroes of the world for mm-hmm. the role that they've played in in saving it. Mm-hmm. And they get home, and they find that they still aren't done because Ooh. Saruman gets gets uh, kicked out of uh, uh, Orthanc. Okay. The the ants the ants show up. They rip up all of his works. 
They can't actually destroy the tower because it's built out of some magical, ancient, mm-hmm. you know, godlike stone. Did they try attacking it in pairs? Because I hear when the ends go marching two by two. Two by two. Hurrah. Yeah. Hurrah. Yeah. Nice. No. Okay. No. So, in the movies, mm-hmm. um, uh, Saruman winds up getting betrayed by uh, Wormtongue. Okay. And and stabbed in the back. Oh yeah. And there's and there's a wonderful behind the scenes story of the filming of the. Have you heard this yes, story about yes about how that Christopher, Christopher Lee is Lee, a scary motherfucking yeah badass. yeah it's Christopher Lee is is <laughs> possibly one of one of the most terrifying individuals in the world because I mean he's At been Saruman yeah yeah he's been Saruman he was Dracula yeah a lot mm-hmm. like repeatedly in the in the sixties seventies for Hammer um, and he's been. Uh, he's, he's been he's been a wizard. I mean, like Count like Dooku. A, a, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not counting Count Dooku because okay. that was because that was after. Well, no, was that after Saruman or was that before Saruman? It was before. It was before Saruman. Saruman's a bigger deal to me. I yeah, I, yeah. I got it, you know. But um, so so yeah. But in real life, it turns out he was with the OSS. Right. You know, and no, no, that's not the sound someone makes when you stab them in the back. Yeah. Okay, well then, Christopher, um, you do that how how you apparently know it actually goes. <laughs> well, and he even like like there's video of him doing it. And he's like, yeah, because yeah, your lungs and it lets out a gut a gasp because you're pushing and you're like, oh my lord. <laughs> so oh, so this all makes sense, you, and I don't like that it does. You, you have firsthand experience with this, dear yeah. lord. Yeah, yeah. So you know. Um, it's also interesting to note, talking about the OSS, uh, that um, uh, kind of related of, of, you know, people that you wouldn't think to look at them were, you know, terrifying, scary individuals. Mm-hmm. Dr. Ruth Westheimer <laughs> was a sniper oh, with shit. the Israeli resistance. I believe it. Yeah. I believe it. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, She's I just... Squinty. Yeah, I had, to, mm-hmm. I had to get that one out there. That's but, a good one. But uh, Scotty so, from Star Trek. Oh well, yeah. Just Lost a, a finger stone, on D-Day. Stone, stone cold badass. Yeah, Canadian. Yeah. Canadian. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah <laughs> I not... was I was in a pulp game that my buddy ran. Yeah. And the whole point of it was, and it was a Weird War Two game. Yeah, yeah. And we had to find Scotty's finger. That was the <laughs> MacGuffin. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. It was I awesome. Like that. Yeah. So, but back to the yeah, yeah, back yeah, to yeah. the thread. Yeah. So they 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 get back to the Shire, and in the books, mm-hmm. um. Gandalf asks the Ents, where is Saruman? Mm-hmm. And they say, Yeah, we can't find him. Right. We've we've we we don't care. We don't care about where he is. We wanna we wanna undo the damage that he's done and you know fix all this and get the rivers running clear again and you know and he's he's not he's not on our radar anymore. We don't care. So whatever. This isn't Wilhelm going into exile at all. No, not in the least. No. No. <laughs> Hadn't thought of that parallel, mm-hmm. but Huh. So anyway, he he flees, and nobody knows where he's gone. Nobody really cares anymore because at that point, okay, we've dealt with Saruman. He was always the secondary threat. We got to focus on Sauron. Right. And so then, at the end of the book, they've defeated Sauron. They go mm-hmm. home, and they find that the Shire has been turned into basically a gigantic strip mining operation. A whole bunch of the trees have been cut down. There's a gigantic sandy pit where 
you know, uh, uh, farmland and everything used to be. And there is a dictatorship Mm -hmm. in place where, you know, we never really find out how the Shire is actually governed. Yeah, it seems like an autonomous collective. It it, it comes across as being either an autonomous autonomous collective or some kind of weird semi-feudal anarcho thing. Yeah. You know, like... It Folks was never, living near each other, yeah, proto-capitalism. It was, yeah, it was, it was never never really gotten into. But when they get back, it's really clear that there are a group of goblin men mm-hmm. who have shown up. These these you know funny looking thugs uh, who are working for somebody named Sharky, and uh, there are hobbits who have been co-opted into acting as their quislings. And they're they're low ranking enforcers, and the the newly arriving you know lordly hobbits who've just saved the world basically organize an uprising where the rest of the hobbits mm-hmm. uh, first uh, shame many of the quizzling hobbits into walking away, and then you know quietly off 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 scene pretty sure several of them get the tar kicked out of them uh by their neighbors are like you always were a bad one you know right uh and then the the thugs the goblin men show up and the hobbits have built a barricade and they've done all this stuff and they're being led now wow. they're being led now by mary and pippin, pippin right lords who, are back who, yeah and um when when they get thumped mm-hmm um, their leader gets dragged out, and Sharky mm-hmm. turns out to be Saruman. Mm. And he's called Sharky because the Orcish term for old man is Sharku. Okay. And so his name, so these sure, guys yeah. are speaking Orcish because they're not they're not quite fully orcs and they're not quite fully men. They're right. you know, monstrous. They're yeah. a Devo. Yeah, nice. And so. You know, in the end, um, they wind up having this very cathartic moment where they wind up, uh, you know, basically, um, I don't remember whether it's Merry or Pippin off the top of my head, but one of them draws his sword mm-hmm. to to cut him down. And Frodo, as, as the perfect Christian mm-hmm. and as a Christ figure, mm-hmm. tells him, no, we're not going to kill him. We're going... To let him go. Okay. He has lost his power because it's very clear now they've dragged him out into the sunlight and he's this bent, wizened old man, right. embittered and twisted, and he no longer has the majesty okay. of being because originally he was an angel. Him him right. and Gandalf were Maya. They were okay. they were angels. Well, he he has essentially been stripped of his grace. He has been stripped of his divinity. He's now just a bent, twisted, bitter old man. Okay. And let him go. The most fitting punishment is to let him live with his live, failings. Live with yeah. live with what he is, which, even as I'm sitting here talking to you, mm-hmm. um, the garden at Gethsemane, when uh, Judas betrays Christ, the Sanhedrin show up with the Roman soldiers to arrest Jesus. Uh huh. Peter draws a sword right. and cuts one of them, right. and Christ stops stops him. him. Live by the sword, die by the sword. Yeah. So, still, <laughs> trying and, not to write an allegory and 
Wow. Steps right into so one. So there's, yeah. And then, and, th- and it is then that with a desperate wail of, of utter, utter loss, bereftment, rage, betrayal, mm-hmm. it is at that point in the books that Wormtongue pounces on him and kills him. Why? Because uh, in, in the end, as they are, as they are leaving, mm-hmm. um, uh, Saruman continues to berate him and belittle him and treat him like the dirt on the bottom of his shoe. He basically, I don't remember okay. what he says to him, but he, he says, calls him a cur, something. Okay. Yeah. Insults him finally one last time, and that's the point at which he, he snaps and okay. kills him. Okay. Because it's because it's been it's it's finally he's no longer the great he's no longer right. the, the the powerful wizard he's just a bent wizened old man and he's still ragging on him okay. you know still still treating him like like nothing and so he he that is the point in the books when uh-huh. Saruman winds up dying and so we see in the end the ultimate victory. Mm-hmm. Finally, in the very, very end, we see the ultimate victory of the pastoral uh, gentry kind of, mm-hmm. of, you know, everybody everybody here gets along. We have this beneficent, not at all feudal, but, you know, at post-feudal, yeah. you know, kind of kind of relationship between the, the gentry and, and everybody else. And this, this, you know, coalition of well-meaning pastoralists winds up defeating mm-hmm. the power-hungry, uh, corrupted, evil, you know, fallen angel right. of technology. And then, you know, we have a time jump, and at the very end of the book, Frodo mm-hmm. and um, Bilbo, who's so ancient, he's basically all the time asleep, right. get on the ship, and they head out sure. with, with Gandalf and, and so forth. And so that's 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 our ending. Okay. And so it's very very uh, powerful. It's it's very hard to overlook that kind of interpretation of it. Yeah. And I think um, in in the end, I think the the ultimate the ultimate message that that Tolkien winds up writing, whether he whether he meant to or not, is is one of um, kind of pastoralist Christian allegory. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he and Chesterton would have gotten along quite well. Um... Hi there, Geek Nation. Something happened strangely with our audio, so it cut off a part of uh, the the discussion uh, from Ed after the Chesterton comment. Uh, but essentially, he was talking a lot about how you have the triumph of nature over uh, machinery. And things like that. So hopefully this little segue helps to bridge the gap with what's missing. The war. Mm-hmm. Live through the interwar period. And then see it all happen all over again. Yeah. Um, and he, you know, started the book in 37. But by the time he got done with the book, the Second World War was in full swing. Right. At, at the very thing might have been over by then, by the time he finished. But... Um, he he had to witness all of that, mm-hmm. and on a Christian level, on a naturalist, pastoralist, idealized, you know, rolling green hills of England level, 
And just on a level of somebody who had been through all of that and come out the other side mm-hmm. and then had to watch the world go mad and tear itself apart again and then watch his sons have to go off and, and fight in this outbreak of, of insanity. It really um, does sound like Saruman was the Second World War come to the Shire. It, 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 like, in a way, yeah. yeah. And so... Um, you know the the parallels are there, mm-hmm. and I there, there's been I'm I'm not when I'm when I'm saying what I'm saying I'm not I'm not expressing anything that hasn't been said by much more scholarly individuals than me right. a lot of times over, but I think especially in light of the way his stories have become now such a mainstream part of our shared popular culture. Sure. You know, they've, they've now gone beyond just being a nerd thing to being something that, you know, everybody knows about. Right. Um, and and I think it's, it's important to see that and to think about the allegories, mm-hmm. even though the allegories weren't intentional, even though he didn't set out to write that. That almost makes that more important. Yeah. Like, look how important this is to the unconscious of that time. Yeah. That it, a man who deliberately didn't set out to do it, Mm -hmm. did it. Yeah. 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 So that's, that's what I have to say about it. Okay. Um, I mean, we could go into a whole other episode or two about (laughs) Catholicism as a thing, but Mm -hmm. what in the Lord of the Rings, um, and it'd take a lot more than two episodes for Catholicism as a thing. That'd be forever. I think there's a bunch of other podcasts. Yeah, there's a yeah. Lot, lot of other uh, podcasts yeah. that handle that. But what are you taking away from this at this point? Now that, um, we're, now that we're done. I yeah. Think. Well, a couple things. I was 17. Yeah. And I was in a play. It was called The Picnic. And it was directed, written and directed by a man named Dan Monaco. I say this in case he ends up hearing this at some time. Okay. I was in that play. Now, I was 17, so I'm 41 now. If you do your math, that's 24 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So 24 years ago puts us in the mid-1990s. Yeah. Uh, I was in that play given two lines that I said 12 times. Help me. Okay. That was it. Uh, and uh okay and the reason i said uh a lot is because in the play my entire job was to be brought out in rags tied to a post and beaten in the stomach 82 times per play by a man okay. who was in fatigues and a a black shirt that was kind of skin tight okay there were two people sitting in front of us uh, who were trying to have a picnic, complaining about the noises I was making. A king comes by, and he has an entourage, and he talks about how fit he is, and the entourage takes pictures, and they say, and he says, isn't the king fit? Oh, very fit. And then they see me getting beaten. He says, why, that can't happen. Uh, they should stop that. And the guy's having the picnic. Oh, they do it all the time. It's terrible. It's just the worst. Could you do something about it? You're a king. Absolutely. I shall make a proclamation. And they put a proclamation in my mouth, and it hangs in front of my stomach. And the guy comes out and beats it until it disintegrates. So now I've got a bit in my mouth that I end up spitting out to say, help me again. And the king's like, right, we've done our job, uh, but you two need to make sure that it carries on. 
ignoring entirely the result. Um, and he gives them blue helmets to wear. Wow. I didn't know I was an allegory for Bosnia. Because <laughs> I was 17. And I had friends who came and saw it, and they're like, oh my god, this is brilliant. This is, you know, a really good allegory. Yeah. And at the end, I'm dead, dragged off stage, and then the guy, very, very soundlessly, very dispassionately, grabs the guys in the blue helmets, who, by the way, argue the whole time as to how to protect me. Don't lift a finger. Uh, He grabs them and chains them to each other around the thing, and as he's rearing back to swing... The lights go out, and you hear one of them shout the other one's name, and that's the end of the play. The thesis of the play was inaction is its own death, right? You, yeah. You know, yeah. It was, it was, okay. Yeah. Very Samuel Beckett meets John Paul Sartre. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. It was a great play. Yeah. I liked it a lot. And delicious. Yeah. <laughs> and delicious. Yes. But some anvils need to be dropped. Yeah. Um, I didn't realize I was in an allegory at the time, because I was 17. Yeah. So I totally get how a man could utterly deceive himself into thinking that he was not doing allegories. That's not what I do. I'm an author. I'm writing a fairy tale. That's what I set out to do. And, I mean, fairy tales are for kids. Mm -hmm. Anyway, he's kind of trying to recapture innocence lost. I mean, there's all kinds of things. Oh, yeah, all kind of. He's 100% a product of when he was. Um, Yeah, there's no... no there's no arguing that. Yeah. So I like that uh, about his his efforts. That despite his efforts, um, he still ended up writing a a good good series of fiction about the world wars. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that. I there was something about Saruman coming back to the Shire and him having to do that work all over again. Which kind of gets to the bleakness of it. Gets to the evil never sleeps mm-hmm. aspect of it. Yeah. Even when you think you've beaten it, um, it, it will crop up without constant vigilance. And, of course, that tickles me where I itch. Well, yeah. So, yeah. those are it would. Yeah. Those are, those are the things I took from it. It reminded me of, of that and how, you know, very often things are allegory without you realizing it. And that's totally okay. Yeah. and And even if... They're not intended to be allegory, even if mm-hmm. the allegory winds up being something that you apply after the fact. Right. So the parallels to nuclear weapons, mm-hmm. for example, mm-hmm. are allegories that that are kind of ex post facto. Yes. Like, well, we have we have this thing, and we have this other thing that like when he was coming up with this concept this had not happened yet yeah it had but not yet now, been now right after the fact we can mm-hmm. look at bikini atoll right and and hiroshima and nagasaki and we can see mm-hmm. the parallel to you know this oh, yeah. massively powerful event happening and if anybody makes a movie with it they're going to have that in mind yeah so i i believe it was was it hegel well, this dialectic said that uh, truth is sublimated. Yeah, as it rolls along, right? You're that... you're, you're a lot more up on German philosophers <laughs> than I am, so I'm going to have to take Fair. the word for okay. it. Okay, I think it's him. I always pictured his his idea of sublimation of the meanings mm-hmm. of words. Words um, carry with them the meanings that they originally had, but also new meanings, and they yeah. they morph together. 
I always okay. picture it as like you've got different colors of Play-Doh and you roll a ball and then you roll it over them. Now you see the red inside the brown and in the brown yeah. inside the blue. You won't be able to separate them out ever again. No, that you, makes sense. Yeah, you've you've racked. Well, the same the same so, thing the same thing applies to symbols. Yes, and that's you what know, I'm saying. Is, yeah, is, is, with yeah. this literature. Yeah. So it didn't used to be about um, atomic weapons. It is now. Yeah. It didn't. You know, he set out with it not being about the world wars. It is. Yeah. And now it's all those things. Yeah. And I mean, if we look at Peter Jackson's version of it, I bet you people could now draw parallels between. The Hobbit, and say, I don't know, the hunt for Bin Laden. You probably could. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you probably could. Yeah. I, I think I, I would be I would be interested to see where the parallels get drawn in yeah. that. But I, I see what you mean. You'd by see it. aspects in yeah. it, you know, and that's fine. Yeah, that's absolutely fine. Yeah. So anyway, that's what I got from it. Um, yeah, it was uh, bleak and sad. So here's hoping that our <laughs> our next podcast won't be. Uh, do uh, do people have a way of finding you online? They do. I can be found on Twitter at ehblaylock, where um, I tend to do an awful lot of retweeting. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not. I, I haven't gotten down to figuring out how to say anything in 140 characters very very well. They've expanded as it anybody to, as anybody who's listened to this podcast long enough will be able to tell. <laughs> uh, how about you? Uh, I'm on Twitter at at the harmony. There's two H's in the middle there, um, and uh, we're also at uh, Geek History Time uh, on Twitter. Uh, you'll find me very often yelling at people in power. Uh, lately, it's a local school district and former yeah. board members. Yeah. Um, also, in my spare time, it's the president. Uh, and then there's some nerdy things. And you were a very copious spare time yes. as a teacher and a union <laughs> rep. And yeah. Boy, howdy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And also, we have a website, geekhistorytime.com. Yes. So please go to that. We could use the hits. Um, please subscribe to us. We're on iTunes. We're on Stitcher. We're on Spotify. Yeah. Uh, please subscribe. Hit that like button. Give us five star ratings if you think we deserve it. If you don't, don't touch anything. Um, <laughs> well, you know, a four star rating. I'll, I'll take a four star. I won't. Uh, okay. Five star or nothing. All right. Uh, <laughs> all right. But uh, but in all honesty, you know, rate us, review us. Please subscribe. You uh, know, and and uh, if if you want to contact us on Twitter to let us know what you think of the podcast, please. Uh, if you have any kind of criticism, mm-hmm. well, constructive criticism. Any, anything we can be doing better, anything, uh, any ideas you might have for something we might talk about, please, please provide us with those. We'd, we'd love to hear what you guys want to hear about. Yeah. Uh, so I'm Ed Blaylock. I'm Damien Harmony. And until next time, keep rolling 20s.